welcome back, everybody, to your week's episode of Pulch. I'm your host, uh, Joyce, calling in is from... Is that what you think Bl- I sound like? Bloody London is that, town. Is, is that what I sound like to you? <laughs> um, it's what ev- I sa- sound like to everyone. I, I, I can't do it without getting into Australian for some reason. It's just kind of slips into australia for me it's the easiest and accent that's the most to do offensive is... thing you've ever done to me <laughs> <laughs> so welcome everyone to the last episode of pulch <laughs> declaration of war between england and america <laughs> <laughs> when it, when we develop an unbridgeable divide as i get increasingly offensive over the next hour and a half Goodbye to the special relationship. Sorry, FDR. So this week uh, is our second week in a row of not doing what the podcast is explicitly about. Uh, we didn't read anything. We instead watched Alexei Balabanov's 2012 film Me Too, or Ya Tozhe something like that. Um, oh, are we are we just going straight into this? Are we not? Uh, no, I was just given a little teaser. Then we'll do the typical okay. what have you been up to segment. Then we get into the film. Then the what have you been reading. And then the news. Um, you'd think that someone would know this the standard format of the show by now. But I guess we not. Don't, we normally don't name the subject at the top of the show, is all I'm saying. Really? Um Okay. I thought you were disposing with any of the niceties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to well, get this episode over with. Yeah, well, you know, we have a pretty tense relationship now, so I wanted to kind of minimize the small talk and get over with the podcast. <laughs> it's, like, it's like how The Who, the, the last album that they recorded, they didn't meet in person at all, the two remaining members. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Unlike normally, we're not physically in the same location. So normally I normally I fly to um uh the Midlands uh to record. Um but it's a very expensive podcast. It really is. We're not joking that we want you to donate. We're we're both I've Please, maxed out four God. credit cards since we started the show and I really don't know how I'm going to make the minimum payments anymore. I owe some some dodgy people a lot of money. <laughs> Um, so yeah, back to the, uh, the routine niceties. Uh, how have you been? What have you been up to? Uh, yeah, I've been, I've been fine. I've not really been up to much, obviously. Um, I mean, I've, I've been going out on some walks lately and I've started to take my camera with me, just take pictures. And, uh, that ended up with on Friday, me, uh, getting locked into a park <laughs> when closed for the night what did you do um i was uh luckily some uh the 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 the, the park staff some of the park staff were leaving uh so so um, they spotted me and directed me to a hole in the fence to, to crawl onto the neighboring golf course and leave by their gate that's kind of fun yeah you don't get you don't crawl through a lot of holes and fences as you get older, it's nice Not to have a little economy. adventure like that. Yeah, who can afford it? 
So do you have do you have a DSLR? Like a what kind of camera do you have? Uh, it's a, a digital camera, uh, a Panasonic. I picked up for fifty pounds secondhand. I don't know anything about cameras. Okay. I don't know anything about lenses. Uh, I point it at what I want to take a picture of, and I press the button, and most of the time, uh, it goes click, and it takes a picture. <laughs> Sounds like a decent camera. Yeah, I have a, I have a DSLR that's um. I decided when I moved here to like put it in a prominent place so that I would remember to use it and to, you know, I kind of tried to be into photography for six months in college, I guess. Um, and it's really just mocking me like all yeah. the, all the pictures on it date back like eight months. Um, and I haven't really, I don't know. I think I need to just admit to myself that I don't really care about photography and put it on Craigslist yeah. or something. But uh that's a hard step to take. I mean, uh, my worst uh, housemate at university was really into photography as part of his degree. He used to take, uh, he did micro photography. So he'd take pictures of insects and like really, really high zoom pictures of plants and things. So he had, he had multiple, you know, several thousand pound lenses just lying about the house because he was a complete slob. And I hated him so much. So... <laughs> I have a I have a big grudge against people who are like really into photography. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mostly just took pictures of birds, I guess, birds and buildings. Um, it's not, you know, the most original subject matter, but at least it's not like chain link fences or power lines. Yeah, kind of the standard amateur photographer material. Um, no, I think it's just going to be put into the graveyard of hobbies I've tried and didn't stick with yeah i mean better to have tried <laughs> i was trying to think of a, a famous quotation yeah. Yeah, i can think i can think of one I, I don't know were you trying to interpolate the loved and lost sort of thing I think I got that confused with something else in my head because I was like halfway through saying it when I realized I couldn't think of a way to make that like work. <laughs> Better to have tried. Um, yeah. What have I been doing? Um, let's see. I've been playing through all the stalker games, which are um, yeah. oddly appropriate for this yeah, episode. Yes, they still good. Yeah, um, it's it's nice. There's they have a lot of mods for them that make them look not current, but pretty good for how old they are. Um, yeah, I've been playing them in the order of this story. So I played Clear Sky, and now I'm about probably most of the way through Shadow of Chernobyl, and then I'm on to Call of Pripyat. Um, do you know about Stalker Anomaly? No, it's like it's it's a fan mod uh, in the very loosest sense, because it's not really a mod. It's a standalone game and it has yeah. <laughs> all of the content from the original Stalker games, plus tons more. It's like there's like hundreds of hours of material in Stalker Jesus. Anomaly, and it's probably probably the best entry in the series even though it was made completely just by like 
Russian fans of the game. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm I'm gonna play that next. Uh, well, next when I'm done with all the uh, original Stalker games. There's supposed to be Stalker Two is supposed to come out this year, um, and GSC Game World, the Russian company that makes them, has like released some material, like trailers and you know, peeks at all the textures and stuff like that. that yeah, seems to suggest that it might actually happen. Um, if if you know anything about Stalker, like Stalker Two has been. Um, announced and then canceled and announced and then canceled like a couple times so people have been pretty forever yeah people have been like russian rpgs yeah pretty pretty um negative on the whole project as in it's probably not going to happen but seems like this year we might get it so it would be very ironic if the pandemic ends and then i stay in my house all day anyway because i'm playing the new stalker game playing stalker too it would you know it's worse things to stay in your house doing i uh, i tried to play shadow of chernobyl once uh picked up in a steam sale for like a pound but uh this was when i was still at home on the old family desktop uh, which could not run stalker shadow of chernobyl <laughs> you need a pretty bad computer to not be able to run shadow of chernobyl because obviously this was just like my parents needed a computer for like word documents and things at home so there's been there'd been no intention to optimize it for gaming yeah <laughs> so. i mean it it came out in 2007 and even for then it's pretty it's pretty light um so i think your <laughs> I mean, parents... that's about when they bought the computer and they won't have gone for a top of the range 2007 computer <laughs> my craigslist finds computer has served me pretty well i got this desktop for 150 bucks on Craigslist, um, Jesus, from some guy whose house was like filled with dolls and reeked of like decades of cigarette smoke. <laughs> um, so the computer still sm- smells faintly of cigarettes, but it's it's been able to play pretty much anything from like 2015 or prior. Um, yeah, which is an enormous backlog for me because I didn't really play video games in college. Um, and I pretty much only played Team Fortress in high school, so there's <laughs> there's a lot of like modern classics that I just haven't gotten around to yet. Yeah. So I've been enjoying that in the last couple months, kind of post grad school applications. I've been a I've been a gamer. I mean, the best game of all time already came out in 2004, and it's called Half Life Two. So really, you don't need to play anything from after that. Okay. All right. Um, trying to think of a half-life 2 reference but i can't come up with any because i just skip all the cutscenes. um have i told you this like when i play half-life i have no idea what's happening um i played half-life <laughs> 2 a couple times and i i still don't know like anything about about the actual plot of the game because i just run past everyone who's talking and i skip all yeah. the cutscenes and I'm not even sure if there are cutscenes, but this is how I play every there game, basically. I don't care about the story. <laughs> yeah, well, if the scientist is, like, talking to you, I'm, like, jumping around or, like, throwing boxes at yeah. the walls with the gravity gun. I'm not I'm not at all paying attention to what he's talking about. I mean, the gist is uh, bad aliens shoot them, drive the boat, 
<laughs> yes, get stuck in the boat. Um, give up playing the game for a couple weeks. Um, <laughs> jam your boat into the Suez Canal for a little, oh, little cool. contemporary <laughs> events reference for everyone. Those clouds in Congress have done it again. What a bunch of clouds. All right. Um, if that's the best joke we can muster, I think we'd better go ahead and get into the meat of the episode. Yes, enough of the soggy top uh, top layer of bread. The disappointing appetizers that make you want to leave the restaurant. Um, but if you're still here, we watched Me Too, or Ya Tojie Hoshu, I think. Uh, which was Alexei Balabanov's last film. Um, actually, before I get into the film, I did a little bit of reading, mainly with Google Translate, because there's not much good material on him in English. His English Wikipedia article is two or three paragraphs long, and his Russian Wikipedia article is several pages long. Um, <laughs> just to kind of give you an impression of how much bigger a deal Balabanov is uh, in his native land than he is here. Uh, here, he's pretty much only known for Brother, which came out in 97, I think. We can talk about yeah. that in a second. But Balabanov's quick biography, he was born in 1959 in uh, Sverdlovsk, um, now uh basically in the Urals, so not not in Moscow or St. Petersburg. He later relocated to St. Petersburg, but kind of a backwater, essentially. Both of his parents were involved in academia. His mother insisted that he study languages when he was young. Um, so he, he went to like a school that had a good English program so he could learn English. Um, during the uh, 81 to 83, he was a he was in the Soviet army and then briefly in the Navy. He was a military translator. Um, he was in mostly in like Africa and Asia. He was involved in Afghanistan, but he didn't really fight. Oh, wow. um, he shares one. <laughs> he shares one anecdote of being told to. Um, they were driving a car or something or a jeep in uh, Afghanistan, and he was told to get behind the driver for safety. So you know that there's not two targets essentially if they're going to get shot at. Yeah. Um, that the driver will go down, and then he can uh, duck in the back seat, uh, William Volman style. <laughs> um, let's see as a, as like a teenager and a student. Um, oh yeah. He went to like a, I think it's Gorky pedagogical Institute, um, to study languages. When I say languages, I don't know. There's not good information in English. Um, and, uh, when he was a teenager and a student, he was involved in like rock music by his account. He was not a good kid. He like threw rocks at people and made pipe bombs <laughs> and that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and unlike many young students of his generation, he didn't really have any interest in the hard sciences, you know, eighties, uh, Soviet union, very big on physics, chemistry, applied mathematics. There's tons of like musicians who like went to, went to college and studied like statistics or something, which would be weird here, but yeah. there it's pretty common. <laughs> uh, but he didn't really have any interest in the sciences, 
was much more into languages. He was in a rock band. Um, so you might notice the soundtrack um, of this movie and actually all of his movies is like bands that Balaban have liked. Um, not Dillis, but Pompilius. I think I'm saying that right. Is is one Russian band that like he was friends with and they're from the same. Uh, I'm not sure if they're also from Yekaterinburg, but they're from like the Ural region. Um, yeah. And uh, let's see, they, they kind of, he used them in the soundtrack for Brother um, or Brat. And uh, they kind of, you know, the movie got famous and they got famous or kind of because of him. So he kind of always had this yeah. relationship with Russian rock music um, that he carried into his filmmaking. Uh, what else? I think that's the end of my notes. He died in 2013. So the year after, uh, me too came out, he was 54 years old. He died of a heart attack. So, yes, I, I read that he'd, um, he'd been expecting to die quite, uh, quite shortly for a couple of years beforehand. So he knew it would be his last film. Yeah. He wasn't in good health. And he said in interviews that he was, well, he says a lot of things in interviews, and we might get into this as well. Like, he contradicts himself a lot, and he says things essentially to be provocative. So you never know when something is cited in an interview, like how serious Belabanov is being. But um, he was definitely in ailing health and certainly aware of this. Um, yeah. So let me open the floor to you. What's your kind of previous exposure to Belabanov, and how did, how did you bring that into this film? Uh, my previous exposure to Balabanov was you telling me about his movie Cargo 200, that it was A, a masterpiece, and B, completely fucked up. Uh, so I watched Cargo 200 and I was like, wow, Nick was right on both counts. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so, so since then, I've been like, I should watch more Balabanov. So when you suggested this, I was like, yeah, fantastic. I hope it's like Cargo 200. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I um I, I was exposed to him. I, I took a class on Russian cinema and kind of the last couple of units were on modern um and post-Soviet Russian cinema. He um he was an assistant director and then a director in the Soviet Union, but I think he only had his first couple of films um before it became the Russian Federation. So we we talked about brother and then I was like, My God, this is wonderful. Um let me watch more of his stuff. And so I watched Cargo Two Hundred. Um Actually, I didn't know anything about Cargo 200. Um, so I was thinking kind of more like Brother, which is kind of like, you know, it's it's similarly nihilistic, but it's kind of a guy movie, really. Um, Brother 2, especially. Um, yeah. So I was expecting something more along those lines. So I, I had um, former guest Leo Del Mar over, and I was like, hey, you know, let's watch this Russian movie. I got a six pack of beers. It'll be great. Oh boy. <laughs> and then we just kind of we watch the film and then we're just kind of sitting there shell shocked at the end of it and we haven't touched our beers at all. Um so, it's not so. a not a dude's rock movie. <laughs> um so yeah, but I mean it's it's a fantastic film. It's it's really um he did something similar in talking about Cargo 200. It's it's a pretty direct adaptation of Faulkner's novel Sanctuary. In interviews, he claimed, "No, it's not. I've never read Sanctuary," um, which is <laughs> is completely untrue. 
that you know these two stories would be written with essentially the same plot um yeah but that's just kind of how he liked to interact with interviewers i mean he did he did apparently say he he was he, he found tarkovsky's stalker boring and was completely uninterested in it but me too is it's 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 impossible to talk about it without sort of thinking about it stalker at least yeah it's essentially a pastiche of stalker right they go into this um irradiated zone as it were and try to find something very similar to the wish granter or the wish machine in stalker um yeah so it's it's pretty uh pretty obviously related to it yes he said he said in some interviews that he uh, didn't like Stalker and didn't base any of Me Too on Stalker. And then in other interviews, he said that he's never seen Stalker. Um, so, <laughs> <laughs> so both of those can't be true at, at once, and probably neither of them are true. Um, but yeah, moving into, I guess, the actual film. Um, so Me Too is about a, um, a bandit. That's how it was translated in my subtitles basically a, a criminal and a musician who is actually a musician in real life. The actor's name is Olag uh, Gorkusha, and he's from the band, I'm going to fuck up saying this, Oktyom, um, popular Russian rock band. Um, I know at least one Russian who's an Oktyom fan, so it would be kind of like having, I don't know, I guess Kurt Cobain as himself in your movie. Um yeah. Russian audiences would know who this is. He's been in a couple other things, but he's not a professional actor. Neither is the bandit. I well, no, the bandit is. The bandit was in like five Balabanov movies. Um, yeah, he was also in Cargo Two Hundred. But was he? Who, who was he in Cargo Two Hundred? He was like the army captain who doesn't appear very much. Not the not Captain Jurov, the insane guy who tortures the woman. But he's like a, he shows up at the beginning yeah. of the film. He's kind of like talking yeah, yeah. philosophy over like a pitcher of beer. Remember that guy? Yeah, with the guy with the glasses. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Um, and they pick up some characters along the way. They pick up their, they break their alcoholic buddy Matveyev um, out of rehab. Um, and then they pick up his father who says almost nothing in the whole movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> they, they pick up a hitchhiking prostitute or philosophy student turned prostitute along the way and um is there anyone else i'm forgetting anyway uh they have they have the guy who can tell the future in the car briefly that's right that's right who is by the way peter balabanov balabanov's son ah. it's uh his only film appearance that i could find anywhere online so kind of fun um and anyway, they all load up in this bandit's uh, Toyota Land Cruiser and take a journey to the Belfry of Happiness or the Bell Tower of Happiness, where apparently um, this is like in a, a, I keep saying zone, um, an area that's irradiated with um, radiation. <laughs> what a great sentence. <laughs> an irradiated area um, where people can be taken away and uh, 
given happiness. This is it's kept very abstract in the movie. There's no real specific discussion of what that means, other than you don't come back. Um, so either you've been taken away or you die. Yeah. So they they get there, and um, a few of them are taken away by just being not shown on screen anymore. Or at least that's what I thought happened. Um, and then the bandit, uh, who's kind of the main character of the film, um, gets there and is not is not taken to happiness um, as the uh, fortune-telling kids suggested would happen. Um, and he sits down on a, a little curb, I guess, um, with a film director who is, of course, Alexei Balabanov himself. And they sort of commiserate that, yeah, I never found happiness. I don't know why it happened. And that's just kind of how it is. So the film ends with the bandit returning to, I think it was a church, um, or maybe the belfry itself, and saying, you know, I want to go too. Yeah. And that's the end of the movie. And and the director dies as well. <laughs> yep, he just sort of slumps over and dies as he would uh, less than a year after shooting that. Um, so this, <laughs> I know it's uh, it's certainly not as brutal as uh, Cargo Two Hundred. You know, there's no decaying corpses or anything like that. Well, there are, but they're they're pretty well frozen. Yeah, like it's it's uh, it's it's a. It's a Frank Tashlin comedy in comparison to Cargo 200. <laughs> yeah, I saw that in, in kind of all the reviews I read of it, um, called it a black comedy. And I, I don't know. I mean, there you know, the, there were some parts of the dialogue that were probably intended to be funny, but I, I found it really sad. Um, I, I wasn't laughing very much. I honestly thought Cargo 200 was funnier. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't call it primarily a comedy. There are sort of, you know, the occasional bits of dialogue and things are funny, but you can have, still have a serious movie that does that. You know, like you say, it is the whole point of the, you know the whole gist of the film is most of the guys who go there are these you know sad, out of shape, middle aged or older men who just want to give up on their lives and get away from everything. Yeah. I was thinking about this, like if you described in the abstract a movie about a bunch of fat guys driving around in a V8 SUV, you'd think it was an American movie. But um, yeah. um, that's that's most of the action in the movie, by the way, takes place in the SUV that are, they're driving around from St. Petersburg to this uh, belfry of happiness. They mostly drive around talking to each other, drinking vodka. And um, the bandit tells a bunch of stories that probably aren't true. Um, yeah. But it's never really confirmed. I mean, he does shoot people. It's the first thing that happens in the movie. So he shoots four people for, I don't even know why. I don't think it's ever explained. They turn up, they know him, they address him by name, don't they? And then he just shoots them all. Yeah, but but he has a bunch of stories where someone slights him in some way and then he shoots them to death. Um, you sort of wonder how <laughs> it's, true this it's is. It's very Alan Partridge, isn't it? Needless <laughs> to say, I had the last laugh. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I think that's a decent, decent introduction of the movie. What was your experience of it? What do you think? Uh, I liked it, 
uh, I was a little disappointed because uh, I was hoping it would be as good as Cargo Two Hundred, and it wasn't. But I still, I still, you know, I still really liked it. It's still a very good film, a fitting uh, capstone to a, a career ended too early. What did you think of it uh, visually? It's interesting. He's um, Malabanov is is a was a film devotee, um, for his whole life film being you know the actual medium of physical film um not the not films um and this is his first and last film shot in digital um and so it looks different than than many of them you know it's got kind of a documentary style they didn't get filming permits for a lot of the street shots you know so all of the traffic in st petersburg um so it kind of has a faster, more naturalistic kind of style than something like Brother or Cargo Two Hundred. Yeah, I did. I did. Like, I note. I noted down that the digital makes it look like TV. So it's just yeah. everything is very sharp and crisp. It's interesting. They the, the very funny part of it to me was um, that <laughs> there's kind of a gag that. Um, you know, the irradiated area is in a nuclear winter. And um, this is taken quite literally in the film in that uh, all the area around the Belfry is in winter time. It's not winter um, in the rest of the movie, but they get there and then it's it's just snow and, and um, yeah, kind of bleak, overcast clouds, which was funny. But it, it was also really beautiful. Um, he said in one interview, if you can trust any of his interviews, that really it was finding this location, um, this like ruined belfry and church um, on, I forget where it is, might be on the outskirts of St. Petersburg. I'm not sure. Um, but it was finding this location that kind of inspired the rest of the movie. But yeah. the way they shoot that, it's, it's really beautiful. A lot of his films have locations like that that are, you know, essentially just destroyed, rotting kind of uh, buildings like this. I mean, Cargo 200 is a good example. Um, the St. Petersburg and Brother is pretty ugly. Uh, it's it's almost uninhabited looking in Of Freaks and Men, one of his earlier movies. Um, so he's always kind of had this impetus i guess to portray st petersburg as decaying and and sort of rotting like this but the way it's shot in uh and the like the belfry and the church and all the area around uh the belfry i'm tempted to do the adverbly adjective thing people do when they're talking (laughs) about movies that drives me insane um but it's it's really pretty beautiful um, the way they shoot this and it's kind of, I guess, in contrast with the rest of, you know, all the locations they, they visit, like the baths and the pharmacy and the yes, sort of grimy post-Soviet housing that they live in. Yeah. The rehab clinic, it all looks, um, like a building version of the actors who are all kind of flabby and ugly. Yeah. I mean, one, one thing I, I thought was interesting was that, um, uh, the pharmacy that Oleg 
goes to the start. The interior is very, um, the interior is deliberately antique as opposed to sort of the modernness of the rest of the setting. It was just, it was very strange to see, you know, a stalker style movie set mostly in modern St. Petersburg with recognizably modern cars. Because obviously in, you know, not to hark back to already, but Stalker, obviously you don't see a lot of the world outside of the zone. And what you do see is sort of timeless or like the Jeep they drive is a very old and blocky Jeep. But that did make me consider, would that have just been, obviously when it was made, would people have just looked at that Jeep and seen a modern Jeep and felt the same things I felt seeing them driving to the Belfry in a, you know, Toyota people carrier? Yeah, that's, I don't know. That's, that's a, that's an interesting question because he's, he's not a nostalgic director by any means, you know? I mean, that was kind of, that was some of the controversy around Cargo 200 that it's, that it's a depiction of the Soviet period that doesn't really have any, any nostalgia for it. You know, that it's, it's kind of an, I wouldn't say anti perestroika film, but it's certainly, you know, it was made after the collapse of the Soviet union and it, it um, depicts life as pretty bleak. You know, the army is helpless and the police are corrupt. So, you know, he's never really wanted to return to any, particular period so it kind of makes sense to me that he would set his last film in 2012 russia yeah um one thing one thing that was funny about it was the fact that the the location of this mysterious zone is so um so i can't think of the word so properly defined like you know you drive out of petersburg it's between st petersburg and this other town you turn right on this road (laughs) there's, there's no sort of supernatural mystery to it apart from the sheer fact of its being the belfry of happiness apart from that it is to all intents and purposes firmly uh firmly realistic mm-hmm. they they arrive there and there is a gate with some guards um and the guards say you know yeah you know people don't really return from here but uh, the patriarch said that we should let people through so go on in Yes, like so long as we give you, we're supposed to give you a warning, but we can let you through. Right, which is funny to kind of um, put that in contrast with like Stalker or Roadside Picnic. Um, <laughs> you know, that yeah. it's, it sort of keeps that kind of as a pastiche of um, this older material. Um, you know, that the army is just kind of there to, to give you a sort of a, a little PSA and then open the gate <laughs> for you. Um, Pat Talk. Yeah. Get another um, champ. <laughs> so that's kind of yeah, I guess I guess we can sort of get into that. Like he he does quote Tarkovsky um in this, you know, like the the um the briefcase that Balabanov himself has at the end of the uh movie. Yeah. Um I found I found one article that linked like the um you know the church with the candles that the bandit goes into and you know it says the candles they never go out. You know, it's sort of uh it's very similar to like the end of nostalgia. You know, if you've seen Nostalgia? Yes. Yeah, because I watched all of Tarkovsky recently. Oh, good. Get me. I mean, it's it's pretty obviously related, you know, just in terms of the basic structure of the movie. Um, yeah. Rather than a writer and a professor, of course, you have all these uh, Balabanov-esque miscreants. You know, you have your prostitute and an alcoholic and a murderer and a 
old guy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he probably did some crimes this time. <laughs> um, and and they all. I, I don't really know if this is his style as a filmmaker or if Russian people are really like this, but they have very terse conversations. You know, someone will. Uh, yeah. Someone will say something like tell a story of their life or or whatever, and then everyone will kind of grunt like, you know, who cares? Yeah, they won't like build on that. <laughs> it was it was strange because the the bandit and Oleg, I forget the bandit's name. He, he's, he's not named, or is he? No, they say his name right at the start, don't they? It's like, but he's he's credited as bandit on on like the credits of Letterboxd and things. Okay, yeah, they're they're. They're established to be friends, but you don't really feel like they are, you know? Like, they, they sort of I mean, just... It's, it's just sort of... When when he, when the musician turns up at the banya, he says, oh, you know, so-and-so is here. So they, they know each other, but I don't even know if friends would be the right word for that. It's just a, people who... Obviously, two acquaintances who know each other in a, in a social situation, they'll sort of... Yeah go with what's familiar yeah he summons him over to you know drink some beers with him eat his dried fish and then they they go to the spa i guess together um but they don't really seem like they're pals maybe this is just what russians are like <laughs> i've i've not met enough russians to uh to say but I, I, the musician just sort of you know, he's in the middle of his day, going about his day, and he just willingly drops everything to go. Because obviously the band has been planning to, to go out to the Belfry of Happiness, and he, the musician just says, yeah, I'll come. He's willing to just drop everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of their motives and everything seem unspoken. You know, you get the impression that the musician, well, he says at one point, but it's toward the end, you know, I'm tired of touring and, you know, booze and girls and that kind of thing i just want to be happy um yeah but that's not really fleshed out at all um kind of why they're willing to uh go to this area and uh never return um they sort of hint at it but it's not you know it's it's fairly terse i guess in that regard um is that going to say it's a it's a very slow movie which is very strange for something that short because it's only 80 minutes and it's you know, it's forty minutes until they've left Saint Petersburg. Yeah, it and is. It's, it's, there's a lot of time taken up with following them down corridors, you know, packing some warm coats and things. Yeah, while the same song plays over and over again. Oh, yeah. There's like two songs on the soundtrack. Yeah, um, he he likes doing that. I mean, I, I sort of get the impression that he kind of just wants to do music videos for his favorite rock songs sometimes. You might you might call um brother like just an extended Nutellus Pompilius video. Um because he, he certainly he uses music in a way that's a lot of the time the music is very loud, um such that you're straining to hear the dialogue. Um not that I can understand yeah, yes, Russian I... anyway, but he the the way it's mixed kind of reflects that priority of his that a lot of the time what people are saying is drowned out by whatever russian song this is yes i was i was thinking while watching this was like boy i'm glad i'm not russian so i can just read the subtitles 
Yeah, I, I, so I, I mentioned that our oligarch, uh, our Gargusha is indeed oligarchusha in real life. And there's one very funny bit where um, they're sitting around the campfire about to go into the Belfry of Happiness. And um, oh, yes. they, <laughs> the bandit asks Oleg to uh, play him a song. And, um, you know, Okjam is like, you know, they're, they're a hard rock band, you know, like kind of punk. And so he gets out his guitar and starts, you know, he puts on, on his little glasses first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He struggles to put on his reading glasses and then he pulls out his guitar and, you know, like just pounds on it and like wails out this punk song that doesn't really seem like something you'd want to play around a campfire with your acoustic <laughs> guitar. I don't really know what that is doing, um, but it was a funny moment. Yeah, I suppose, I suppose it's sort of. Because the the bandit is quite a vain character, I guess he's he's the one who doesn't get taken away, but Oleg does. So I guess he's it's his sort of humility that makes him worthy of happiness. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I guess we can transition into this. the The character of um, the boy who can tell the future or who knows everything. What do you think yes. that's what do you think that's going on? I, I noticed that aside from the prostitute, who we might want to talk about later, um he's you know, he's the only young character, I guess. Everyone else is old. I don't know how old they are, but they look pretty bad. Yeah. <laughs> so he's 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 the only young character, again, aside from uh Leobov. And he knows everything, and he tells everyone what's going to happen when they reach the Belfry before they get there. Yes. What do you think is going on with that? Uh, I I don't know, because I mean he 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 does he he's he's being interviewed on television at the start of the film, and I I picked up on one one of the bandits uh, first one of the first things the bandit says to the musician is I knew you'd come, so the sort of connection there in terms of being able to foretell the future i'm not sure what that means though <laughs> yeah i don't know it's interesting because because all the characters that go on with their journey even though it seems like in the story they believe um that this kid knows everything you know yeah no one no one seems to seems to doubt that right yeah they don't take him for fraud um but they they go along anyway you know he tells um Matiev, uh so yeah the alcoholic anyway he tells him that you know you're going to reach the belfry and you would have been taken but you're not going to go um and that's exactly what happens when they get there his father dies and he stays behind to bury his father and doesn't go in yeah which again connects back to how when when the bandit turns up to get him out of rehab he says he doesn't want to leave Mm -hmm. so they sort of steal him out while he's unconscious yeah, and this and the same thing, you know, happens for Oleg. He says he'll be taken, and he is, and he says that the bandit will be left behind, and he is. Um, I don't know. I mean, it's hard not to put an autobiographical reading on it. I mean, Balabanov said, you know, this is my most personal film. Yeah, I never like those. You know, I never really like it when art criticism is like, this is how the director is feeling, and it's a an act analogy for you know his own experience but it's kind of impossible not to see the film through that lens because 
he puts himself in it. <laughs> right. He puts himself in it as the last character and he kind of gives himself the lines that sort of sum up the movie that it's like, I, you know, I, I don't know why I wasn't taken. What do you think it means that his, that he cast his son to be the boy who knows everything? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, it's, it seems significant, but I can't really put my finger on it. Yes. It, it seems more sort of personally significant rather than thematically. Yeah. Cause you have no real way of knowing that's Belovanov's son. Um, he, didn't seem to have been in any films since this was made. Um, so whatever he's doing, he's hopefully not an actor because it's nine years now. Uh, <laughs> he's just waiting for another job offer to come along. <laughs> Maybe I'll have some other relative who's a famous film director can get me roles. <laughs> um, I don't know. It seemed, you know, it, it seemed uh, touching in a way that he would kind of put himself as this kind of hopeless sort of not really washed up because he's he's a successful director in the movie but yeah hopeless and unable to find happiness and then kind of have his son as as this more positive sort of role who's kind of a go between i guess with with the 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 men searching for happiness and and the belfry itself you know he's kind of this uh seer character i guess Yes, because he, it, one of his lines is that he says the boy gets picked up before he even reaches the belfry. So he's he's so sort of uh, preternaturally good that he doesn't even need to, to, to finally reach the actual location. Yeah. Yeah, I'd forgotten that, but it that sort of strengthens the argument, I guess, that it, there's sort of an element of, of hope sort of for his, his son or, you know, maybe kind of future purer generations that uh, didn't drink yeah, themselves do, to do death think, or fight in Afghanistan. Do you think that's a deliberate uh, comment on all the youth of Russia? Because obviously, like you say, the, the prostitutes and the, and the boy are the only young characters and they're both accepted. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it seems... <laughs> it doesn't really seem in line with what I know of Alexei Balabonov to be... Um, particularly hopeful about the future of russia yeah he's he's got a pretty nihilistic bent throughout um which is sort of, this maybe him dropping his guard yeah at which, the end of his life which is why this kind of this fairly earnest movie about you know all these men who've kind of they've tried and everything and they you know they just want to kind of be taken away into to um, find happiness at the end of their lives. It, it's a, yeah, you're right. It, it feels pretty unguarded for the director of brother two, um, <laughs> you know, which is just a, you know, it's great movie, but it's just pure xenophobic vitriol, you know? <laughs> but I, I mean, I mean, flipping it around, is it maybe a bad thing that young people, just as much as old people who've been th who've lived through so much want to uh, get away completely from their lives because you know the old guys they're washed up you know they've they've all been in the military they've all been hard drinking you know you can see that they're just completely out of shape you know you can kind of you can kind of reasonably think okay yeah i can see why this guy wants to basically die mm -hmm. but the young people 
who haven't had time to go through as much. Yeah. You know, someone who someone who knows everything doesn't, you know, thinks himself so unhappy, he's willing to go somewhere that no one returns from for a chance at happiness. I guess that's an angle I hadn't really considered, but yeah, it makes sense. I mean that you know, the prostitute, she's she's got such a cliche prostitute story that, you know, her dad died and her mother is sick. She studied philosophy, but she says, you know, there's no work for philosophy. It was easier yeah. to find work with my ass than with philosophy. Um, yeah. Which I just heard that and I thought, hmm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so true, bestie. <laughs> um, it's not really explained why Peter, I'm just going to call him Peter, even though that's his name in real life, because I don't remember yeah. what his name is in the movie, why he's... Um, <laughs> Also searching out the belfry of happiness. He's called Peter in the movie as well, actually. Okay. Very creative, Alexei. That's the second movie I've watched this weekend where characters are just called their actors' names. (laughs) Yep, and that is why Hollywood beat out Russian cinema, because we can think up new names for our characters. (laughs) Here's a tip, Russians. Stop calling everyone Ivan. Two thousand years of Ivan's, no more. <laughs> Maybe think of another name other than Vladimir. Hmm? <laughs> yeah, so we got all that sorted. That's nice. Um, yes, uh, one thing, another thing, uh, just a nice little detail was that um, when the bandit is in his apartment packing up coats and things, there's a statue of Don Quixote. I didn't. I didn't pick that up. It's just like it's just like on his dresser with like his picture frames and things. Yeah, I guess that sort of fits. It's a bit quixotic, isn't he? Yeah, because he's he's the one. He's the sort of driving force. He's the one telling everyone about it. But he's he's the only one of them who both goes to the belfry and doesn't get uh, accepted. You know, I mean, Russians—they always sort of lord uh, how cultured and educated they are over um, Americans. I guess it is true if you wouldn't expect an American bandit to have a statue of Don Quixote on his dresser. I don't think we have bandits in America to begin with. Not anymore. (laughs) It's been a long time since we've had bandits, so maybe you should work on that. Less emphasis on teaching your criminals Cervantes. I mean, you know, if I'm being mugged by someone, I'd be pretty reassured to know they'd read Cervantes. (laughs) I'd, I'd feel I was being mugged by a higher caliber of man. <laughs> it's true. Maybe next time I'm um, a victim of a crime, I'll ask a, you know, if you read the exemplary stories. Do we have any more thoughts on the movie? I wanna... Nothing major. I mean, it's 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 sort of it's always going to be difficult to make uh, sort of very insightful political pronouncements about it because it's. It's a Russian movie, and I don't know about you, but you know, I know I know a bit about Russia, but uh, but Alabanov is smart enough that the things he'll be saying about Russia are probably more in depth than I would understand specifically. Yeah, I mean that's that that's good to be reminded of that that it's it is a different culture and a different context, and he's saying a lot of things that are very specifically toward his Russian audience. Having never been there, and 
never speaking the language and knowing maybe four or five Russians in my whole life. I am not qualified to make any pronouncements about that. Um, so we kind <laughs> we, of have we, to. We can make we can make sweeping pronouncements, like sort of the, the difference between, say, Soviet and post-Soviet cinema. Like, for example, do you, do you think uh, do you think there is a sort of dichotomy there, deliberately with terms of like the guards at the borders of the zone? Because obviously in Stalker, there's a whole sequence where they have to like break into the zone and they get shot at. And as as we've mentioned here, they just drive up. They say, "Go right ahead, boys. You're not going to come back." Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I hadn't really seen it in that regard, but yeah, I, I guess if you kind of wanted to read Me Too as like a post-Soviet um, reinterpretation of Stalker, um, there's probably a lot of uh, a lot to mine from that. Yeah, because I did uh, another thing when when the prostitutes appeared. Obviously, that's uh, sex and commerce sort of combined into one character in thematic terms, which are two things that are largely absent from Stalker, with its very high flown, entirely masculine uh, narrative. Mm-hmm. He's, he's sort of deliberately taking this material and dragging it down to a more uh, more social realist level. I'm hesitant to bring this up because I don't know if I have anything to say about it, but, you know, gender, I mean, like in a lot of his, his films, you know, all of the characters are pretty explicitly sexist. Um, you know, there's, there's the, I don't know if all of the characters, you know, Oleg's pretty nice to the prostitute, but uh, the bandit, yeah, you know, I says mean, things like, I, you know, Matt Yev. yeah, like you didn't, you didn't, uh, didn't share this with, with her, did you? Because I don't, I don't want to share a bottle. I don't with share whore. bottles with whores. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, oh man, what are the other examples? You know, like, why do they let chicks drive? Yeah. He says when they're <laughs> on the streets of St. Petersburg, um, it's kind of stuff like that. Um, you know, the man, it makes a very cruel joke on, uh, on the prostitute and says, you know, you have to, when they get to the belfry, he says, you have to get out. The belfry doesn't uh, take women, um, unless they're naked. Um, so they kick her out of the car and she dutifully, strips off all her clothing and runs through the freezing cold to get to the yes, belfry. Yes, these high snowbanks. I felt, I, f- I felt the cold watching yeah. that. I was sort of wincing, going, oh no. <laughs> that poor actress. I mean, to shoot that, she really did have to do that, didn't she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I couldn't, like, if, if I had been a filmmaker, I just wouldn't have put that in, because I, I couldn't be like, I can't make a woman <laughs> run naked through snow. <laughs> Well, you can if you're Balabanov. Um, yeah, no, it, that that seemed very uncomfortable. Um, not as uncomfortable as being chained to a bed next to the rotting corpse of your fiance, but still pretty unpleasant. Not only, yeah, I mean, different strokes. <laughs> <laughs> but do we have anything to say about gender? I guess in this movie, I know I don't, but maybe you do. I mean, it's 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 pretty clear cut, uh, isn't it? You know, the bandit is among all his other negative qualities a misogynist. Uh, he's you know he's a nasty man. He doesn't get taken up. The prostitute is a woman. You know, she, from what you know, she she doesn't tell us a lot about herself. But from what we do know, she seems to be, you know, a person who's a nice person who's having a shit life, and she does get accepted. 
I think it's sort of a, a general comment on uh, the unfairly downtrodden position of the woman in Russia. Yeah, I mean, for for all of his uh, nihilism um, and misanthropy, certain critics, whose names I forget because they're long and Russian, have commented that Balvonov is essentially a moralist. Um, that he's, you know, his a lot of his films are dealing with all right, the failings of the Soviet Union um, and then just the grim realities of post-Soviet Russia, the need for morals and, and some grounding in how people relate with each other. Um, some critics said that that all of his characters are essentially like cornered wolves, I think is the phrase, in a world that's essentially alien to them. And they have to use violence uh, as a way to protect themselves and make their way in this alien world. Yeah. And I guess if you sort of think of it through that lens, that Me Too kind of has, you know, this this desire to just essentially get out of that alien world to to try to, you know, escape how brutal and and uh, corrupt, uh, you know, the world is and, and try to get, you know, just away from it, you know, whatever that means, you know, happiness, yeah. right, is such a laughably abstract goal. But, you know, it convinces all these characters to just drop what they're doing and, and go to this location where no one comes comes back from. Yeah, I mean, w- would you? <laughs> um, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think I would. If, if someone told me of a, uh, an abandoned belfry on the outskirts of Chicago that uh, uh, no one returns from, I think I would just stay here. I mean that's that, that's presumably the, the pretty standard uh, abandoned belfry outside Chicago <laughs> that uh, you don't come back from. Yeah, it's an abandoned belfry in Gary, Indiana, and you don't come back because um, you get addicted to crack and you stay there. <laughs> I was I was making a joke about gun crime. Yeah, well, you know, <laughs> the two go hand in hand. <laughs> How about you? Would you? You'd think crackheads would be too blissed out to, to, to engage in gun crime. Sadly, not the case. Yeah, sadly. <laughs> um, how about you? Would you go to the Belfry? Probably, yeah. <laughs> and if, if I like... If, if, if so all these people seem to not need too much convincing. So I think if, if someone like believably enough mentioned it to me, Probably, yeah. You know, I don't have a car, so I'm not sure how I'd get there. But <laughs> you'd have to run naked so through the snow. If Pulch ever gets uh, some, because I'm a sudden explained hiatus, <laughs> you know why? If we want to get ourselves a Toyota Land Cruiser and uh, drive some around, fish. Yeah, and that sounds nice. I wanted to go to the uh, Russian bath with them. Have some guy hit me with a birch branch. Um, yeah, the the salted fish did look pretty tasty, to be honest. Really, I, I uh, could definitely go for some of that. I don't, I don't think I'd, I don't think I'd go for that. I, I also, I don't know if we've mentioned, but the entire movie they're passing around a bottle of vodka. Like, yes. I don't know how they're not just hammered when they get to the belfry. They're Russian, <laughs> right? Um, 
they are they are built different yeah they they seem to be drinking really more to kill the pain than to enjoy it as much i don't know last last night i was on a zoom call with some of my college pals and i had three quarters of a limerita and that uh, that was more than enough for me oh i i drank 90 percent of a bottle of vodka on friday night while watching uh, movies and I had a great time but i didn't get out of bed until 3 p.m on saturday <laughs> sounds very uh, very russian um you betcha all right. I think that's uh I think that was a decent discussion. Like uh you know, neither of us are really you much more so than me. I watch maybe one movie a month, but you're pretty uh you're pretty well versed in film. So uh if yeah, you want I'm someone to harangue over getting the movie wrong, make it Joyce, not me. That's right, folks. I mean I'm the one who runs the Twitter anyway, so if you just like harass me on there. If you get elon musk to quote retweet a dunk on me or something did you uh did you hear about this um uh the new tesla uh scams basically they are they are double charging loads of customers who are buying teslas and just like st- stonewalling them when they try to reach customer support oh that's great yeah, there are multiple people on like Twitter and other review sites who have been like, they've they've taken the they've taken the seventy thousand dollars out of my account twice. Like that's all my money. <laughs> that's great. It couldn't happen to a better demographic. It is really really funny. Like if you have that much money to burn on a Tesla, fuck you. You deserve to have all of it taken away. Absolutely. No, that just makes me happy. <laughs> I mean, fuck them. They deserve it. Yeah. Rich assholes. I'm, I'm, see, I'm seeing an increasing number of Teslas on, on the roads now, and I hate it every time. Every time I walk past one that's parked, I just want to like scratch it with my keys. Yeah. My my car has been out of service for like two months now. It had some problem with the heater core, I think. And my roommate has been trying to fix it off and on. It's just been going so long, like I'm gonna get like a moped or something. Um, yeah, I. I mean, he's doing a great job. I'm, I'm not besmirching his mechanic skills. It's just <laughs> longer than I was expected to be without a car. Yeah, I mean, you're not going anywhere. That's true because I don't have a car. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. All right, so I think that was a good discussion of uh, me too. Um, now for the news. The news, newsy, newsy, news. Um, yes, yeah, so two apparently big uh, writerly deaths. Larry McMurtry and Beverly Clear- Clearly Cleary have both passed away. You ever read any of them? No. I haven't either. Um, great, great chat. Uh, <laughs> I found... <laughs> I don't know. I've got nothing to say about these people. You know. <laughs> Not Beverly Cleary. Not Beverly Cleary. Uh, so they've, they've found uh, an early draft of Allen Ginsberg's Howl, uh, presumably in someone's bin. Boo. Boo. <laughs> Put it back, I say. Put, Put it, it back. right back, yeah. <laughs> Toss a banana peel over it. Get that shit out of here. Feed it to a dog. 
Oh man, an some... even less edited version of Howl. What could be worse? <laughs> Fucking kill myself. <laughs> just just pure nonsensical heroin ramblings. Um so um, uh, uh were you were you aware of a couple of years ago some new fragments of Sappho uh were found? No, I wasn't. Uh, so it was in about 2014, 15, but uh, some some doubts have been cast on their provenance. So it's highly likely that something shady went on. Interesting. Uh, so the actual the actual poems themselves are still believed to be Sappho, but it's it's believed that that the, pe- the people who brought uh, the papers to light said, "Oh yes, we just we found them in some material that had been taken out of Egypt before 1970, because that's when they brought in a new law about repatriating relics." But there've been some uh, some fingers pointed as to where exactly it's come from, and it, it turns out uh, it was purchased by the same people who were using Hobby Lobby to buy relics from ISIS. Oh, well, that <laughs> is a story. <laughs> Huh. So yeah, there's some shady goings on in the world of classical literature. The last place you would expect there to be people doing naughty things for lots of money. That is interesting. That is really, uh, that's really something. I don't know. I mean, fake Sappho wouldn't be too hard to do, really. It's kind of once you get the gist of it, you can kind of, you know, Markov chain your way through, really. Yeah. But but this this does cause an issue for like, because obviously the they've been put back into storage or something. So hopefully they're hoping they can be repatriated and then put in a museum somewhere so they can't be studied because they are apparently it is genuine Sappho, but it's not, it's just in terms of the ownership question has gotten a bit dicey. Interesting. Yeah. Sappho is one of these who, who basically exists so people can like take a picture of a, like a, you know, a couple lines for poetry, put it on Tumblr. Yeah. Oh my God. Did you see him? Um, you, you know, you know, Rupi Kaur, that terrible. Oh, poet. yeah. Yeah. I saw that. This, the fucking, yeah. The yeah. Just cringe, cringe. I had cringe to look it up. Stuff. I had to look it up because I don't know what Rupi Kaur looks like. I was, uh, this has got to be like, this has to be someone like doing a, doing a mean impression of, <laughs> and damn. Nope. God That's damn. That was I, fucking bad. <laughs> I saw it because I saw someone tweet, can't believe this sounds even more dog shit read out than it does on the page. And I was like, what's he talking about? And I followed up the chain to see the video. And it's just, oh, it was bad. Didn't realize you wrote such bloody awful poetry. (laughs) Did you read that one, um, that one magazine profile of her where her, like the, the writer meets up with, meets up with Rupi Kaur and her like manager, whatever manager says, Oh yeah, just, just, just be wary. You, you know, we're probably going to get mobbed. So they, they go to a bookshop to just like literary setting for the interview. Literally nobody like notices. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Yeah. Every time, every time you, you see that stuff, it's like, how many people are like in this? You know, it's fucking dog shit. Yeah, because it's like it's like it's people's idea of poetry who haven't actually read any poetry since like they were twelve years old in English class. You always wonder how hard would it be to you know to just like sell yourself as like one of those and kind of do that that kind of thing. 
um, just really be on that grind. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, already work a job I don't care about. You know, how much harder would it be? <laughs> make shitty poetry for people's coffee tables. Don't forget their Instagram feeds. Like, it is my ambition as a writer to never write anything that can be, you know, a sentence can be taken out of context and shared as an inspirational quote of, like, a pastel background. It's hard to do that because some very unlikely writers get that treatment. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's one there's one Volman quote about someone lending someone some books that gets like oh, yes. Goodreads gets favorite quoted a lot. kind of thing. Yeah. So um you'd have to be trying pretty hard to not let that happen to you. Um kind of if you go into some George Bataille material, maybe you can escape escape the, yes. the tumblr literature tag treatment just have every single sentence be about someone fucking a priest's eye socket or shoving an egg up their ass it's not it's not fun but it's what you got to do these days stay <laughs> stay ahead of the fucking blue-haired crowd um, let's see any more news the the, the long-awaited uh, authorized Philip Roth biography uh, is released next week. So obviously, there's been a lot of uh, been a lot of reviews. There's been a lot of discourse. Uh, can you believe that Philip Roth was a horny, horny man? Shocking, I know, but so different from his his literary output that surprises me. You'd never expect it from reading his books. <laughs> yeah, no, I've heard some strange rumblings about that, but. Uh... Uh, skip. <laughs> I mean, I'm excited to read it because uh, over the last uh, year and a half or so, I've read almost all of his books. Like, I wasn't expecting to like him as much as I did, but there's just something about his sentences that are just really supple and flow incredibly well. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe I'll give him a shot someday. I mean, I read I read most of them sort of on my Kindle before I went to bed because I knew it'd be sort of this isn't going to be hugely demanding, so I can just sort of read a page or two before I doze off. Yeah, it's about a horny but English professor. They are mostly about horny English professors, <laughs> but yeah, so I'll I'll get to read about a horny man writing about horny English professors. What a great thing to build a legacy off. <laughs> There's a horny older Jewish man writing books about horny older Jewish men. It's a living. Sure is. It's a living for very many. Um, <laughs> it would be funny to write those kind of books and then just be like a young Asian woman or something like that, you know, just just not really, not really relate to it at all, but just recognize that it's a, uh, it's a popular genre of books. you can work in. Yeah. <laughs> John Updike, Saul Bellow, Philip Roth. Many more. I'm like was a wasp. Yeah. Well, he he wasn't Jewish, but you know, it's like it's pretty similar stuff. You know. Yeah. It's, it's about old old men who want to fuck but can't. I mean, I I couldn't I couldn't get into. I tried up Dyke and Bellow, and I couldn't get into them at all. So I was expecting to lump Roth with them. Really? I read um. What was it? It's not a. Goddamn! What is it? Herzog. That's it is uh i think the only Saul bellow i've read but it was pretty good yeah. um i could i couldn't get into that at all i just yeah there's bounced off that there's one where the uh the 
Saul Bellow stand-in main character is uh, threatened by a black man on the subway who threatens him by like pulling his pants down and showing him his penis, which is <laughs> obviously larger than his. And you're just thinking, wow, that's uh speaks volumes, as it were. <laughs> There's a lot a lot going on with uh with Saul Bellow. <laughs> Yikes, is what I said. Yikes. Um, but it's a pretty good, pretty good book, you know. Kind of comes with the territory, that sort of stuff, but uh, it's, it's a pretty good book, yeah. nonetheless. Saul Bell is a good writer. Are we are we newsed out? Any more news? <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, I think that's um. You've just that's dug yourself a news grave. Do you know what it says on the headstone? <laughs> news. News. <laughs> next time you walk, next time you cross the road, Peter, don't bother looking. um oh yeah yeah the what have you been reading lately segment the well-named what have you been reading lately segment what have you been reading lately uh i mean as mentioned last week i've been alternating between the bible and the literary criticism of henry james so you can just refer to the last episode for that all right everyone everyone go listen to uh last episode again it's a classic um I've been reading, someone put together an EPUB of all of the last psychiatrist uh, blog posts. You heard about this guy? No, I haven't. He was basically just some anonymous psychiatrist who had a blog for a while that was pretty good. So I've been reading through that. Unfortunately, I've been reading through it in chronological order. So like kind of his later things are sort of more for a general public. And the early essays from like 2006 to 2009 are just about like, how he's mad about psychiatrists over prescribing certain drugs and the way that, you know, the way that uh, drugs and insurance and pharmaceutical companies work together and that kind of thing. And how he doesn't think anyone else, but him as a very good psychiatrist. (laughs) So um, that all the psychiatrists think that deep down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, all doctors really, they're all pretty egotistical people. Um, so that's been less interesting than uh, probably the rest of it will be, but it's, you know, bedtime reading. So nothing nothing puts you to sleep other than some guy ranting about people not knowing what Zoloft does. <laughs> he has, he has, one, he has one interesting essay, or not even really essay, just kind of, you know, couple page. Walk post. Post, yeah, about... um about how to document um, discharging suicidal patients. Um, because obviously, you know, if you discharge someone from the hospital and they kill themselves, uh, you could face a malpractice suit and often do. Um, so he, he had, you know, kind of, it was written, his early posts are pretty much written to an audience of psychiatrists slash psychologists. Yeah. Um, so it's pretty inside baseball about, you know, how do you document the treatment and document like what you're thinking um, at the time of discharge so that you can show this to a jury and um, prove that you're not a bad doctor. You know, there's kind of, um, yeah. th- there's, there's, he, he sort of seems to think that it's psychiatrists are treated kind of unfairly in these types of situations that it's very easy to, um, make a case about a negligent uh psychiatrist 
Um, and so he talks about all the ways of basically covering your ass in your, um, in your documentation so that, you know, you can show this to a jury and, uh, get off. Yeah. So I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Never thought of it from that perspective. I mean, covering your ass is always a good idea. We've, um, we, we've got a new uh, what we've got a new company policy in place about um, uh, bitching about clients over emails, because <laughs> because ba- basically now uh, clients can request all information relating to them that we have on file. So every email which which is involved, so we've been told to absolutely not say anything in any emails that we wouldn't want the client to read. So if we do want to put something that we don't want the client to read, we have to send it to someone without specifying in the email who it's about and then <laughs> phone them up and phone them up on the office phones and tell them. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of funny. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't have like, we use Microsoft Teams in my office and uh, I don't have that on my phone because I have heard that if, if you're like if the company faces a lawsuit or something that can get subpoenaed Oof. and then you don't have a phone. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just wouldn't want it on my phone on Prince books. I wouldn't want people from work just being able to contact my phone at any time. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But yeah. So, so you don't want, um, or, or alternatively, like, you know, if, if you lose the phone, like, you know, that's like sensitive company stuff. So you have to destroy it, uh, remotely. So yeah. a lot of fun things like that. I mean, do you think you're going to get subpoenaed at work? Any day now. <laughs> join the join the club. Um. All right. Well, I think that was a good episode. Yeah. And if it, was it wasn't ninety minutes or so. Yeah. If it wasn't, start your own damn show. <laughs> Fuck you. You ain't <laughs> my bitch, <laughs> pal. Buy your own damn fries. <laughs> Get your own damn literary podcast. All right. What is it? Is it Das Vidanya? Is that you're welcome or goodbye? Je, uh, dos Vidanya, Dos Vidanya. I, I don't know. Um, well, I think either would be appropriate to say in, in this context. So, Dos Vidanya, audience. Dos Vidanya. Yeah.